Yesterday at noon, uh, a group of us got together, church, um, right on the boulevard. About 30 of us, and it was really cool to see kids as well. And we just spent time praying and interceding for our city. And we prayed prayer of Jeremiah 28 for the welfare of the city. And uh, it was really powerful. No, prayer is not the only thing we do, but prayer is essential as we hear from God about how we ought to respond to be men and women of justice and peace in our city. So I just want to let you know, sometimes these things come together very quick like this one did. And so we don't have a ton of time to let people know and get the word out. Um, And so um, we do our best. But if you can, as you hear it, and you need to clear your schedule to try and come to some of these things, I'd really want to encourage you to do that. I think it's powerful and important for us as a body to come together and do that. Particularly in light of uh, even news events this week, I am reminded all the more, and part of what we're talking about today, I am reminded all the more that the church of Jesus Christ embodying and demonstrating God's kingdom on earth will be essential to bringing transformation to our culture and our society. Would you agree with that, church? That the church, that is you, me, followers of Jesus in our homes, in our workplace, in our schools, wherever the nook and cranny, every inch that God sends us to, it's, it's us living out our kingdom values in those spheres that is going to bring significant change in our culture and in our society. Um, so next two weeks, we are going to be talking about the politics of Jesus. And uh, I, I want you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. What I'm going to do today is I want to look at this text. And if you're new to our church... Uh, The way that preaching normally is done here at this church is we literally go word for word, verse for verse, and just draw out implications. And uh, what I want to do today, though, is because this is so dense and it's so uh, complex and multilayered, I want to just give a broad overview and lay some foundation, and then we'll really tackle the text next week. Okay? All right. So Mark chapter 12 um, is the text that we're on, and uh, I want to go ahead and read this. FYI, so uh, they got your pastor one of these remotes to control the PowerPoint myself. So today might be disaster. Okay? Like right now. I don't know why it's not working. I don't know why it's not going to the next slide. So um, I'm going to have to trust our fellow back there. James, am I doing something I'm not supposed to? So he, he warned me that like the computer might explode while in the middle of this. Oh, no, he didn't say that. It is on, Nate. Come on, man. Jeez. Okay, I'm going to have to trust you back there. You go do your thing. And uh, I'll, I'll hold on to the remote. See, can you go on to the next slide, please? It not, it not just doing, okay, well. Well, okay, church, open your Bibles to Mark 12. And you know what? Can you just uh, shut that off? Uh, I, I, I actually have uh, been told in places that, oh. Come on, 
Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose portrait is this? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And look at the response. It says they were amazed. They were amazed at him. All four Gospels have this account. And when that happens, you know that it's significant. It's, a, it's important. And, 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 and there's an essential question that they're asking. And by the way, the backdrop, and we'll see more next week. The backdrop is that what has happened previous to this interaction with the Pharisees and Herodians is that Jesus has cleansed the temple. Do you remember that? By the way, I am one of those people that, that, that loves that portrait of Jesus in the temple overturning tables. Don't get me wrong. I love the Jesus that says, let the children come to me. I love that too. But man, I love this other Jesus. He overturns the tables and kicks the money changers out of the temple. So all four gospels have that. And then there's this interaction. And here's the question that they're essentially asking. The question they're essentially asking, we'll see why at the end, the backdrop. The question they're asking is, Jesus, are you a political revolutionary. And you'll see why at the end. I'll show you why. Are you a revolutionary of some sort? What kind of a revolutionary are you? To bring it more immediately to the context, they're asking, what is your politics, essentially? Who do you follow? Uh, What is the relationship between, check this out, the church and the state? What is the responsibility of a follower of Jesus when it comes to politics? Vote? Uh, to do more than vote? What, what is your politics, Jesus? It's essentially the question that they're asking. And we're going to look at in the next two weeks what he says about that. Um, this is election year. Anybody notice? I hate this season. I hate it with a passion. Every four years. Because every four years, I have to have conversations with people in coffee shops and tell them I am not that kind of a Christian. I have to tell people that I don't picket funerals of dead soldiers. I have to tell people that I don't think President Obama is a Muslim. I have to tell people that I am not that kind of an evangelical. If by evangelical, they mean a voting block of primarily white Republicans whose primary issues they care about is gay marriage and abortion. And yes, I also tell them I'm not weird. Um, what? <laughs> Nate's picking on me this morning. I don't know why he's doing that. I am weird a little bit, but not in the way they think. I have to remind people that... that, that that I'm not that Christian or that evangelical. Anybody else find yourself in this situation? Okay, so 
But, 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 but the reason why this is such a passion for me and why I'm going to spend two weeks on this is this. It's every study out there says that people, young people, people under 40, okay? And that's like 80% of us, or you, I should say. I'm not you. I'm over 40. 80%, uh, a big majority of 40, under, under 40-somethings, are rejecting the Christian faith because of the politics it's associated with. There are people out there, and many of you in that generation, who are rejecting the Christian faith because of the politics it's become associated with. When people under 40 think of evangelical or Christianity, they associate it with fundamentalism, the NRA. Sarah Palin, and by the way, I'm not just going to pick on a, a party today because I don't get political like that, and you'll see what I mean. I don't preach from the pulpit who you should vote for. That's not responsible for a pastor. But when people think and associate Christianity or evangelicalism with Sarah Palin or Donald Trump or Jerry Falwell Jr., the president of the largest evangelical university in the country who was one of the first to endorse Donald Trump to be president. I will not tell you who to vote for. Both presidential candidates are are flawed candidates. Having said that, because evangelicals have come, and I put that in quotes, in mass to support Donald Trump, I just want to say this real clear. There is nothing about Donald Trump's character, agenda, or policy that aligns with the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's growing evidence that folks aren't just dissatisfied with the candidates, but they're disengaging politically. Let me show you a statistic. This is according to Voter News Service, which said that people, by the way, how many of you are between ages of 18 and 32? Raise your hands. <laughs> Good Lord, I knew this was going to happen. Church, church, you realize that's like 90% of you on here. Right. Do you know that you make up a third of the eligible voters but only 25% of you actually vote, which is interesting because if you pay attention to the media, the media would have us to believe that the millennials or this age group is the most engaged. You are not. People are not just not voting, but they're unaware and disengaged in issues. There's apathy and indifference to this arena of politics. But if you're a Christian, you should be troubled by that. Do you know why? Let me tell you exactly why. Because this is a lordship issue. This is a lordship issue. Let me tell you what I mean. We say in our church that Jesus Christ is either Lord of all or he is Lord of none at all. What do I mean? We don't divide our lives into spiritual departments. Bible study, prayer, church, small group. And then there's secular departments of work, recreation, and how I vote. All area is spiritual. All area demands his lordship. Can I get an amen? That means there's no area of our lives that isn't perceived through the lens of what would Jesus have to say about this? 
Do not fool yourself into thinking that we could divide ourselves. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Jesus. And that means that how I work, how I write, how I vote, what I do with my sexuality, what I do with my money, what I watch, every area of my life is under his lordship. And I need to ask the question, Jesus, what do you have to say? You do not have the option to go, I don't care about that area. It falls under his lordship. Apathy and indifference. He's lord of that area too. It concerns me, church, that pastors and church leaders, by not tackling, yes, the complicated intersection of faith and politics, we've abandoned this area of spiritual formation to Christian pundits on radio and cable news. And you know what we have? An unchristian-like, judgmental, self-righteous, venomous engagement. These are Christians, by the way. Or total apathy, total disengagement. I'm going to say this once and for all. Your pastor will not allow this area of your spiritual formation to cable news and radio. I'm going to ask you to look seriously about what Scripture has to say. So here's what I want to do. I want to lay some broad foundations. And I'm going to offend and challenge everybody in this room today. The first half will challenge those of us that are sitting here going, why is he talking about this? Can't he talk about Jesus and prayer? And then secondly, I'm going to challenge those of us who are super, super engaged about how we engage. One big theme that I want to put right away is this. Christians should be more political, not less. Don't just go, oh, why is he talking about this? Let's just hang in there. Here's what I mean. There's a difference between politics and partisanship. Partisanship has to do with politics, platforms, party affiliation, candidates, etc. The kind of stuff that you and I go, Ugh. Politics is another definition. Politics, let's look at the original meaning. Original meaning of what politics means. In Greek, it's a combination of two words. Polis, meaning city-state, and polites, meaning citizen. Pay attention. Politics in its original meaning, what its true meaning, is simply how we as citizens engage the polis, or the city, or the country that we live in. So politics has to do with How we organize our communities. Politics has to do with how we decide to live together. Politics is about what we agree to do with our shared resources. Whether that be building schools or raising an army. Politics. Politics. Not partisanship. Having said that, here are the three points I want to drive home today. Number one. Jesus. Jesus and his message were as political as they were spiritual. Jesus and his message were as, again, don't think partisanship, political. Why? When you read through the Gospels, you can't help but notice that Jesus talked about one thing primarily. What was that, church? Say it with me. What? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Throughout the gospel, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. You take the kingdom of God out of the gospels, you have an incomplete picture of who Jesus is. And when you delve into what the kingdom of God is, you realize that what Jesus came to do in his death and resurrection wasn't just to save individual souls and take us to heaven. What he came to do was to reconcile and restore everything. 
Reconcile, restore our relationship with God. Reconcile relationship with each other. And reconcile and restore and fix all of creation. So people who say, just stick to preaching the gospel and leave the politics, you're not paying attention to what Jesus did and what he said. Here's this inauguration sermon. The first sermon he preaches, he takes a scroll out, takes a passage from Isaiah, and this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus gave equal time to transforming people's hearts and also renovating social structures. And if you go, social structures? I don't think so. Pay attention to how Jesus treated women in a culture where women were sometimes considered property. Pay attention to how Jesus, oh, I don't know, dealt with the poor and the marginalized, who in that social structure were almost considered non-entities. Pay attention in the Gospels to how Jesus, oh, I don't know, dealt with the religious establishment who wanted to maintain. Are you tracking with me? If you take Jesus and go, I just want you to focus on spiritual, you're creating a counterfeit Jesus. See, the problem is for some of us, we read the Bible through a Western, modern, cultural grid. What do I mean? I was actually sitting in a seminary class where we read this passage, and a guy goes, but he meant kingdom as in giving me inner peace. The setting the blind, that's about spiritual blindness. And the, the problem with that is that there's no place in the Gospels where that's actually indicated by Jesus, you see. That is our interpretation on top of what it is that Jesus actually said and did. See, the problem with that kind of reading of Scripture is that even though Jesus When Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, nobody in his Jewish audience, first century, thought, hmm, peace in my heart. (laughs) Nobody in his audience thought he came to give peace in my heart. Even though, let's be clear, they were totally misguided as to who and how the kingdom was going to be brought about. Not one single person in the kingdom of God and thought, inner peace, I go to heaven. They thought someone who's going to deal with real injustice, real oppression, real poverty, real issues, you see. Os Guinness, I think, said this about modern Christianity. Contemporary Christianity is privately engaging, but socially irrelevant. The problem with this is, even as recent as the 19th century, think about this. Christian followers of Jesus were on the front lines of dealing with social issues. When it came to instituting child labor laws, when it came... To ending slavery, when it came to these social reforms, giving women the right to vote, who led the way? The answer was church. Followers of Jesus who didn't think that the gospel was socially relevant, but very much socially relevant because it was about the kingdom. Because it was about the kingdom. 
There was no either or mindset to living out your faith. It wasn't Peter, just preach the gospel. Or you know what, let's take care of the poor. It was both. It has always been both. It needs to be both. Secondly, the reason why we need to be more political, not less, is this. At the core of our faith is the call to work for the common good and to love our neighbors. Here are two themes that are woven throughout the Bible, throughout the, you can't miss these themes. Jeremiah chapter 29, 7. And work for the peace and prosperity. And by the way, this is written to Jewish exiles, good Christians, who are in the pagan city of Babylon and saying, all that filthy pagan culture, don't want to deal with it. So we're going to live in our little Christian bubble, you know. Go to Christian coffee shops, go to Christian gyms, hang out with Christians. And God comes and says to these Hebrews, Here's my call for you. Work for the peace and prosperity. Word is shalom, wholeness. Not just absence of peace, but active wholeness, harmony. And then he says this. Pray to the Lord for it. We prayed for the city for an hour yesterday. And if there's anybody in this room that thinks praying for the city is a waste of time, you do not know how God works. You do not know how God works. Pray for the city and for its welfare, for it will determine your welfare too. Somebody said that prayer is an act of rebellion against the status quo. You know what happens when we pray? We come against spiritual forces that are at work that would have this city, that would have the city be violently fractured. And people lost without Jesus. And we cannot not pray for our city. Then Jesus says this in Luke chapter 10 verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with your soul, with your mind and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And if you know your New Testament, what immediately follows this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Where you cannot draw any other conclusion but to say loving your neighbor involves tangible, practical acts of compassion, mercy, and justice. Church, I want to say this loud and clear. Central to our faith is to engage both the personal and social implications of the gospel. When our faith is relegated to just saving souls, we drain the gospel of its power. When our faith is devoid of vision for the common good, it becomes anemic. When we ignore the corporate and social dimensions of our faith, we become Christians who are not well-equipped to love our neighbors. And at that point, I ask you this question. If we do not love our neighbors, is our faith genuine? Is our faith real? See, the thing that kills me is this. Shouldn't Christians be the most engaged, hopeful citizens in any city? Do you know why? Some people don't get involved because they just don't have hope. They go, what's the difference? We believe that the kingdom of God is here partially and is coming in its fullness later. We believe that the future of God has landed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Anybody? That means we could work with hope knowing that our labor is not in vain. And other people who don't get involved because they just don't care. But the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our hearts and causes us to care. If this world is all there is to live for, of course I'm going to live for my time, my money, my energy, my family. But the Bible says there's another world coming. So you don't have to just live for this world and live for yourself. 
We ought to be the most engaged, most passionate out of anybody because we have hope and our hearts have been changed. Christians ought to be the most political and not less. We should be the most informed, most engaged citizens offering thoughtful solutions to spiritual issues, physical issues, cultural issues, economic issues, social issues. When we do that, we give a glimpse of the kingdom of God that is here. Third, Christian engagement in the political process can be a way of doing good work. And I'll tell you a little bit about the political process. Matthew 5, 16, Jesus says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify God on the day he visits us. And I want to say today that the good works that God has for us should include participating in the political process. What is political process? Here's what political process is. Political process is when you and I influence who gets elected and what legislation is passed because of how we vote. Political process is when we call our local and state legislators and tell them the issues that they might not be aware of. Political process is when we engage in a march or protest. Political process is when some of us will run for office someday. Political process, all of that stuff. To which you go, well, why is that important? Let me tell you why it's important. Because who we elect and the legislation they pass severely impacts hundreds and thousands and millions of people. You go, oh, give me an example. Immigration policy. Do you realize that depending on who we vote in and the policy passed, it will affect potentially 11 million people in this country. But policies don't change souls. You're absolutely right. Policies don't save souls. But you know what? Electing a wise and just leader who will pass wise and just policies is absolutely critical to shaping the kind of culture and world we will live in today. Are you tracking with me, church? The wisdom literature has tons to say about this. We only focus on two. Proverbs 20 15, like a roaring lion and a charging bear is a wicked ruler over people. Proverbs 29 2, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. One of the ways that we pursue justice to influence the lives of our neighbors is how? Being involved in the political process. You think it doesn't matter? I'll be clear, not every Christian needs to go and get a degree in public policy. Not every Christian should run for public office. Not every Christian needs to work for campaigns and donate to various candidates. But at a minimum, at a minimum, everybody please pay attention. At a minimum, if you're a Christian, you have absolutely no excuse for not voting. And secondly, please take some time to be engaged about issues and be aware be aware. No, you don't need to be a PhD master, but be aware for crying out loud for the love of God. Really, literally for the love of God. Like, be aware. Church, are you with me? Oh, I know. Like, I mean, I'm listening to this on a Sunday morning. Yes! Because I'm not going to leave this area of spiritual formation to politicians and pundits. Scripture. Scripture, scripture. Having said that, I'm going to pivot now. Now I want to address some others of you. 
Here's the first thing I want us to realize. Is our political engagement. The character in which we engage politically matters. What do I mean? Is our political engagement Christ-like? When there's so much self-righteousness, when there's so much vitriol, when there's so much hatred, when there's so much mocking on social media, is the way you treat someone who disagrees with you, does that honor Jesus? We live in a time when we will mock someone so we don't have to take them seriously. We live in a time where character and integrity Okay? Are attacked so that we don't have to deal with the substance of the issues. I am asking you, Christian, is our engagement Christ like? Does it honor Jesus? Is that person you disagree with an enemy to be fought or a neighbor to be loved and respected? If you're self righteous and judgmental and vitriolic in your speech and actions towards to disagree with you, I'm sorry, but you do not understand the gospel. If you conclude that there is no hope for someone who is of a different opinion, that there is no hope for them, you have forgotten that not a single one of us in here had hope apart from Jesus Christ. Thank you. How can you possibly look at anybody, including our candidates, and conclude there is no hope for them when you're sitting in here because of Jesus Thank you, Amber. I'm going to make it very plain. The gospel ought to humble us. Amen? Unless the gospel humbles you, here's what's going to happen. Look, and this isn't just political engagement. It could be about anything. Unless the gospel humbles you, you're going to think that the enemy is out there when the enemy is in here. If the gospel doesn't humble you, you're going to think they're the problem. When in essence, we are as much of the problem. Our hearts. How can anybody who has been transformed by the gospel actually have the audacity to say, if only they would be different, our world would be different. I'm sorry. If only we would be different. And they would be different. The world would be different. You know what the gospel makes you do? The gospel makes you more able to cooperate with people. The gospel makes you more able to find common causes with people. And the gospel makes you more willing to compromise with people. Whether the candidate you vote for wins or loses is not ultimately what defines success as a Christ follower. We can win an election and lose our soul in the process. Here's what defines success as a Christ follower. Is that we rise above the crass discourse on both sides and we love our neighbor as ourselves. Here's what this means. That means that we as Christians love our atheist neighbor who says, I want to keep creationism out of school. We love that person. That means we love our Democrat neighbor who says, I am for gay marriage and abortion. We love that person. We love that Republican friend and neighbor who says, I want gun ownership and capital punishment. We love them. You don't have to agree. We, we love them as Christ loved them. It's not our faith a call to lay down our lives for another. 
That means I lay down my life for my atheist, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist brother and sister. Nobody has been argued into the kingdom. But lots of people have been loved and served into the kingdom. Secondly, the question isn't, is God on our side? But are we on God's side? Isn't this plain, Amber? I know I'm going to offend some people in here. That's okay. I want to say right now, America is not God's chosen nation. Before you get offended, look at your Bibles. The chosen nation, the new Israel, is not a country. It's the people of God all over the world. Before we pledge allegiance to America, we as followers of Jesus pledge allegiance to Jesus and the fulfillment of his kingdom purposes on earth. John 3.16, the most notable passage, doesn't say, for God so loved America that he gave his own son. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves people, not countries. We don't just pray, God bless America. We ought to pray, God bless the world. Don't confuse America with God's kingdom. I want to say one more thing. When somebody comes and says, Red, white, and blue matters more than the skin of your color. I'm going to politely disagree. You're confusing America with God's kingdom when you say red, white, and blue is more important than the color of your skin. Here's the reason why. I think God is a big fan of diversity. Thank you very much. I think God loves the particular colors, cultures, and particularities of everybody that's represented. I think God is for a kingdom that is of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Can I get an amen? I want to say this, color blindness is a dangerous myth because we live in a world full of CEOs, judges, police, and politicians who are anything but colorblind. On a broader level, by the way, was that too hard? Was that too offensive? Was I biblical? Secondly, Republicans think that God is a Republican and Democrats think that God is on their side and everybody uses God and they hate the other side. We use God to justify our politics and nothing could be more toxic. Here's the question that we're after this morning and next week. Are we on God's side? Are we about God's agenda? Are we about what God cares about, church? See, there's nothing in common or very little between Hillary and Donald. But there's one thing that they share in common. Do you know what that is? When you listen to their party and platforms, everything is about what? The middle class. Everything is about the middle class. What do we do to up the middle class? What do we do to help the middle class? So on and so forth. Here's the problem with that. Read your Bibles. Seems to me there are not a whole lot of things the Bible says about the middle class. Now I know some of y'all are like, but they didn't have a middle class. You're right. They didn't have a middle class back then, okay? That's an invention, a modern invention. They didn't have a middle class. They didn't have a middle class, okay? But here's the issue. The reason why God doesn't say much about the middle class is he is actually more concerned about another group. Do you know who that is? It's called the poor. The poor. You can't read the Old and the New Testament without coming across, God cares about the poor. 
God cares about the poor. Now, that doesn't mean middle class isn't important. It's important living in this country. But my only question to you is, are you looking at it through a biblical lens that says, what does God care about or what do our politicians think? Think. Think. Can we all as Christians just pause and focus our eyes on Jesus? Can we do that? Can we do that? Because if we lose focus of Jesus, here's what happens. We wind up talking a whole lot of things about things that Jesus rarely talked about. And we say very little about what Jesus actually talked about. When we focus on Jesus, it doesn't become about the donkey or the elephant. It becomes about the lamb. When we focus on Jesus, not about left or right. We remain centered on Jesus Christ. Peter, are you going to tell me who to vote for? Heck no. No. I am telling you, go before the cross. Spend time prayer and fasting about what you ought to do. And hear from the Holy Spirit. Here's the last one. Where we place our hope ultimately matters. I ought to hear a resounding amen by now. Amen. Where we put our hope. It is so tempting during election year to put our hope in candidates and parties. And I am here to tell you right now, that is not what Christ followers do. Stop saying stupid things like if so-and-so gets elected, I'm going to move to Canada. We're going to give you, go ahead, go to move to Canada. Why? Because what does God's word say? Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Regardless of who gets elected on November 9th, Wednesday, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get up, realize that the grave is still empty. Thank you very much. I'm going to realize that the kingdom of God is still advancing and I will sleep well because God still sits on the throne. Where is your hope? Where are you putting your hopes? Both sides. And this is my own personal opinion. Please don't say, this is the most important election in the history of our nation. Do your history homework. This is my own personal opinion. I think the most important election in the nation's history was when Abraham Lincoln got elected. Because we thought it was okay to own people before that. This is not the most important election in the history of our nation. It won't be ours, and it probably won't be our children's. You know what Jesus says? And this is where we're going. Hopefully you're uh, jazzed about next week, because I've got lots of questions I need to answer. I know, I know, bring it. Jesus says, my followers get engaged in every facet of society, the spiritual, the economic, the social, because my redemption is for every facet of creation. But I don't want you to think that political revolution, political means is the way to usher in the kingdom of God. Do not put your hopes in political powers. It's not ultimate. It's penultimate. Jesus says, what I'm going to bring to change this world is much more powerful than what any political party can do. 
just pay attention for crying out loud. Do you really think that the social ills in our country today can be solved by the left or the right? Are we not at this point? Because we pretty much have come to realize that our ultimate hope can't rely on a party or a politician. Whether it be Republicans saying it's big businesses and economic growth or the left saying it's about big government and social reform, both ideologies have at its faces fundamentally radical individualism, which is contrary to kingdom values. So what is our hope? Take Jesus' words. I love his words. Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my, say it with me, church, church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Do you know what Jesus envisioned? Check this out. Everybody look up here. Jesus envisioned Christians and followers of Jesus in every facet of their neighborhood and city going out with, empowered by the gospel, going out and living out their lives in kingdom values. And Jesus envisioned when churches and many churches, hundreds, thousands of them all over this country and all over the world would begin living out their lives in their spirit, in kingdom values, we would actually see transformation. Why is this important? Because the problems that we have is not just social, economic, it's also spiritual. And the gospel is the only thing that could address both the spiritual, social, cultural, and every other facet. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you don't go, well, that's, I don't know, that doesn't really buttress your argument. Well, then maybe you should listen to Michelle Alexander, the author of New Jim Crow. I wrote a small group. 15, 16 people through that book this, uh, a year and a half ago. She is, of course, one of the leading experts on the issue of mass incarceration. She has given her entire life to fighting this injustice. She recently said something that literally, I was at a coffee shop. I just walked away from the keyboard. I was like, this is a woman who's given her entire life to fighting as an attorney, legislation, and issues against the issue of mass incarceration. Here's what she said. Solving the crisis we face isn't a matter of having the right facts, graphs, policy analysis, or funding. I no longer believe we could win justice simply by filing lawsuits, flexing our political muscles, or boosting voter turnout. Yes, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. Without a moral and spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped in political games fueled by fear, greed, and hunger for power. This is literally what Jesus says throughout the Gospels. Church, Who are the Herodians and the Pharisees? So, this is a two-minute recap, and I mean that two minutes, and then I'm done, actually. We're getting you out here early, because we have a members meeting. Herodians and Pharisees were on the opposite ends of the political spectrum. Here's the political landscape of the time. The Jews are in Palestine under the oppressive rule of the Roman government. 
there are people, Jews, who actually are in favor of the Romans being charged because they benefited from it. That include rich people like tax collectors and other politicians like the Herodians who kept in charge on behalf of the Romans. But then there were other Jews who resisted Roman rule. Pharisees were one of them. Now, they partly did it out of national pride and also the, the burden of heavy taxation. But their primary reason for why they resisted was because of their faith. What do I mean? They believed that God was Israel's only king. And being subjected or giving a, a, a privilege to a pagan ruler, king, even if he claimed to be God, was contrary to what God's will for them was as a people. So, they resisted and rejected the Roman rule. Now, at this time, here's what happened. About 25 years ago, the Romans came along and they put a tax. It was called the head tax. That's what this passage is about. A head tax. The head tax is one denarius. That's small chump change. But when that happened, there was an armed revolt. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The reason why there was an armed revolt was because of this. It's what the text represented. It wasn't a ton of money, even though they were heavily taxed by other ways. It was what it represented. It was, check this out. The, it was essentially a tax placed on uh, 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 occupied people to essentially say, I am glad to be under the oppressive rule of the Roman government. I, this tax is a sign that I am subject of Caesar. It was what that tax represented. So 25 years prior to this incident, a guy named Judas the Galilean rose up and led an armed revolt against this tax. And here's what happened. First thing he did, he went to the temple. And he cleansed the temple. Chain, took out the money changers. Cleansed the temple. Second thing he did, second thing he did, was he, again, called all Jews to not pay the tax. Not pay the tax. This is a head tax. Tell them that we are, we are privileged to be subjects to Caesar. We don't think so. We only worship God. And the third thing he did was he went around and said, we are going to the political revolution, usher in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. We are going to overthrow the Romans. And we are going to usher in the kingdom of God. What happened to Judas the Galilean? He got caught, was executed promptly. It's 25 years later. A guy named Jesus, a carpenter, comes on the scene. And he has just cleansed the temple. He's just cleansed the temple. And people are paying attention. They're going, all he talks about is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. He constantly talks about the kingdom of God. God's going to earth. Wait a minute. Cleanse the temple. He's talking about the kingdom of God. Hey, Jesus, what do you think of the head tax? Do you see what they're asking? Hey, Jesus, are you going to overthrow the Roman government and usher in this political revolution? To which Jesus says what? I love this. He says what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And their response, they're amazed. Why were they amazed? I'm going to talk about that next week. <laughs> Pray with me. Church, church, 
church, people of God, followers of Jesus. Before we respond in final song, can you take a moment just to listen to the Holy Spirit? Some of you are just completely disengaged. You don't care. You, whether it be because you think, eh, this has nothing to do with spiritual issues. This, this, this is secular. It's about government. It's about politics and voting and yada. No, 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 no. You are a follower of Jesus, which means he is your Lord, and he is Lord over this area of your life. How are you going to allow his lordship in this area to dictate what you do as you leave today? Do you need to be more informed? Do you need to actually pay attention? Do you actually need to register to vote? Come on. Then there's the rest of us. I'm going to say it. Some of us this morning need to repent for the unchristlike behavior. We have dishonored the name of Jesus by the way we have treated people that we disagree with. Please do not leave here this morning without having confessed and repented of that sin, of how you have treated on social media, how you have talked, how you have acted towards those who hold different views than you. Some of us need to repent because we have put our hopes. You could say you didn't, but we have put our hopes on politics and politicians as if they will somehow usher in the kingdom. They cannot and they will not. Do you need to repent of this idolatrous sin of lifting up politics over Jesus? Let me give you a minute just to think and pray. And I ask Cece and the worship team to come on up and lead us in the final song of response. No, this is not the most important election in our history, but it is important. And we need followers of Jesus to act like followers of Jesus in every way. Every way. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for your brother, your sister. Greater love is no one than this, that he lay down his life for another.